Well, good evening. I hope you've had a good day. I hope in those uh, moments of sunshine you didn't get too burnt. Um, we're in Mark chapter 15. If you uh, had a phone and turned it on and then turned it off again, but the Bible is on your phone, then turn it on again. Or if you're one of those people who has this thing called a book and the, the Bible is in there, then uh, do open that up and we'll uh, follow through Mark 15, the passage we just had read. I was thinking this afternoon about uh, national symbols. Uh, most countries have a national symbol. I was trying to find out what yours was, actually, and, and I was asking a few people earlier. Someone said the red hand, is that the symbol for Ulster or something? I don't know. I, I have this horrible feeling that whatever I say is, is not going to be the right thing. So uh, I'll talk about other national symbols instead. So uh, in England, the national symbol is the lion, the lion being such a common indigenous creature uh, to England. Uh, Wales have given up any pretense of, of reality by having a red dragon as their national symbol. Uh, America has the bald eagle, and to their credit, America actually has bald eagles. So we think we can allow them that one. Uh, Canada, in an attempt to kind of bare their teeth and intimidate any would-be aggressor, has gone for the maple leaf. So, so well done, Canada. And Scotland. Any Scots here? Uh, your national symbol is the thistle, which in Genesis 3 is a sign of God's curse. I'm just saying. <laughs> Not making any implications or suggestions uh, on the basis of that. Um, has it ever occurred to you that the symbol of the Christian faith is really strange? I mean, we're so used to it, so it isn't, but we, we think about the cross, and we think, well, that's just the, the symbol of the Christian faith. It is really bizarre. We have as our symbol the most brutal means of execution that, that humanity has devised. Uh, the cross was the Roman contribution to genocide. Uh, they were world leaders when it came to brutality. Uh, one of their kind of intellectual writers, Cicero, said that the cross was, was so horrific you shouldn't even mention it in kind of polite conversation. It was a form of execution designed to cause the most pain over the longest period of time in the most humiliating way. And yet that's what we have on our Bibles, on the front of our churches. Some of us are wearing them around our necks. And we forget what it is we're looking at. A friend of mine was in a, in a jeweler's and they overheard a customer asking to buy a cross and that the attendant showed this customer a particular cross and the customer said, oh no, I want one with a little person on it. We've totally forgotten what it is we are looking at when we look at a cross. And it's even more odd when you think of all the other things that could have been a symbol of the Christian faith. We could have had something like a carpenter's bench referring to, to Jesus' trade or the stone that was rolled away at his resurrection or the dove that descended on him at his baptism. But Christians have always had as their, the most kind of common symbol the cross on which Jesus died. Because when we think of Jesus above everything else, we think of his death. Uh, most biographies, if you uh, read biographies, will have a page or two about the death 
of the person the biography is about, maybe a couple of more pages if there had been some other significant events going on there. But about a third of the gospel accounts are concerned with the death of Jesus and the immediate events running up to it. And we need to stop and ask the question, why? Um, Doing some research, i.e. Googling, um, I found out this afternoon uh, a little over 6,000 people die each hour around the world. That's about two per second. Uh, Death is so universal... Okay, I don't care how much kale you eat. I don't care how many protein shakes you down. All of us will face death. So it's not unusual that Jesus died. It's not even unusual that Jesus was crucified. Pilate was particularly fond of crucifixion. It was a very, very effective deterrent. Uh, there were certain days on which Pilate had hundreds of people crucified. So even dying on a cross was not unusual, and yet there was something about this cross and this death that is not only remembered 2,000 years later, but is changing lives 2,000 years later. And Mark's Gospel shows us why that is. In fact, Mark has been anticipating this moment. Uh, Three times in the course of the Gospel, Jesus has predicted this very act. Uh, He wanted his disciples to know that when his death came, it wasn't really bad luck. It wasn't an accident. Jesus talked not just about the fact that he would die, but about the fact that he had to die. There was an imperative to it. He said, the Son of Man must be killed. Uh, Back in Mark 8, the moment Peter questioned the need for Jesus to die, Jesus rebuked him in the strongest possible terms. He didn't just say, actually, Peter, you're a bit wrong there. He said, get behind me, Satan. The moment you question the need for Jesus to die, Jesus says, you are speaking for Satan. He says to Peter, if you are not with me on this, Peter, you're not with me on anything. Uh, Jesus spoke about giving his life as a ransom for many. That his death was not just inevitable, it was not just necessary, but it was in some way going to be for others. He said it was going to be his act of serving us. The greatest thing he could do for us was to lay down his life. And the account we've just had read to us gives us a number of things that explain why Jesus' death is so significant. I've been working hard at my alliteration today, so we're going to look at the cry, the curtain, and the confession. So let's have a look at the cry of Jesus in these first verses of Mark, uh, of this reading we've just had. Uh, Jesus has been brought before the ruling Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. He's been found guilty in their eyes of blasphemy. Uh, They don't have the authority to pass a death sentence, so they have to hand him over to Pilate and to try to give Pilate a reason to kill him. Uh, Pilate is a little reluctant, but eventually agrees 
to have Jesus crucified. So Jesus is severely flogged. He is led to his death. He is mocked and humiliated on the way. And we're told he is crucified. Uh, Verse 25 of Mark 15, it was the third hour, I think that's about 9 a.m., when they crucified him. Mark is sparing in the details. He doesn't give us all the kind of gory things that would have been happening. He keeps it simple. They crucified him. And up to this point, this would look like a normal death. But in verse 33, we begin to see why this death is like like no other. So verse 33, when the sixth hour, that's midday, had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Something very strange happens, that the whole land is plunged into darkness. Some people have said, well, well, maybe this was some kind of eclipse. Let's not kind of get over miraculously about the whole thing. Maybe it was just an eclipse, but an eclipse will last at the, at the most a few minutes. This darkness lasted for three hours. Uh, Moreover, we know Jesus was crucified at the time of the Passover. That was the time of the full moon. Uh, You can't have an eclipse if there's a full moon. No, this is something else. This is not a natural phenomenon. Uh, If you remember, when the birth of Jesus was announced to the shepherds, the night sky was lit up with the glory of God. The signal at Jesus' birth was brightness in the middle of the night. And now at his death, we have darkness in the middle of the day. And that darkness is a sign of what's going on. And it's not just an arbitrary sign. It's not just God playing around with the dimmer switch. It means something. Darkness in the middle of the day is a sign of judgment. If you remember the the events running up to the exodus of of God's people, uh, the ten plagues on Egypt, the ninth plague was darkness. And it was the darkness then that came before the death of the firstborn. Uh, The Old Testament prophets, again, speak of, of daytime darkness as a sign of God's judgment. So listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 13. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark and the moon will not shed its light. All these words from Zephaniah chapter 1, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And then we have Amos chapter 8, on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon. And darken the earth in broad daylight.
Now, we're in Northern Ireland, so you're used to not seeing the sun in the middle of the day. This is not that. This is a thick, supernatural darkness in the middle of the day. And it is a sign of the judgment of God on sin. A judgment that is horrific. A judgment that is unbearable. We're told there in verse 33, the darkness is over the whole land. The whole land is being judged. The sins of all the people are being judged. And yet in verse 34, there is one voice that cries out in distress. Verse 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The judgment of the land is taking place and one man is bearing it. Uh, some people are listening in in verse 35 and they, they think he's calling Elijah. Eloi sounds a bit like Elijah. Uh, Elijah never died in the Old Testament. Some Jews believe that if in your hour of darkest need, Elijah might turn up and help you. So they're thinking maybe Jesus is crying out to Elijah and they're thinking, this is great, we don't just get to watch a, a crucifixion, Elijah might turn up. So they give Jesus something to drink to try and keep him going a bit longer. But Jesus is not crying out with the hope that Elijah will come to him. He's crying out because God has left him. He is experiencing forsakenness. Now, friends, it is very, very hard for us to process or even imagine what Jesus must be going through. There's the physical pain of what is happening to his body. For many of us, that's a level of pain that is completely outside our frame of reference. There's the emotional and psychological pain of what he's been going through, that the rejection he's been facing by others. And yet what makes Jesus cry out is the spiritual pain he experiences at this moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't cry out, my hands, my feet. He doesn't cry out, my friends. He cries out, my God. Jesus' own friends have betrayed him, denied him and abandoned him. The soldiers have abused him and humiliated him. Uh, the bystanders have derided him. The religious leaders have mocked him. But the rejection that pierces his soul is that he is forsaken by his own God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the language of one of Jesus' future apostles, Jesus is bearing the curse of our sin.
uh, the, the preacher Kevin DeYoung has pointed out that the best way to think about a curse is it's the opposite of a blessing. So if you want to understand what it means for, for Jesus to experience the curse, take the blessing of God in Numbers 6 and reverse it. And this is what it ends up saying. May the Lord curse you and forsake you. May the Lord turn his face away from you. May he frown on you. May the Lord turn his face from you and remove his peace. That is what Jesus Christ is experiencing. He's being pushed out of the loving presence of the Father he's enjoyed for eternity, the most exquisite relationship in the universe. He's being pushed out so that we can be welcomed in. The wrath of God is falling on him so that it might never fall on us. Uh, the older evangelist D.L. Moody, I think it was, used to, to illustrate this by, by talking about those parts of the states where you had those, those kind of massive fires that would wipe out whole communities. And so what some people would do is they would, if there was a particular village or town they wanted to protect, they would dig a, a massive circular trench in a big empty piece of land they would set fire to the land within that circle. And once it had burned out, then when the fires inevitably came to their region, everyone would stand in that circle and would be safe. Safe there because the fire has already burned. And it won't burn again. And at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the place where the wrath of God has already fallen. The one place it is safe for us to stand so that we will never fear it. Jesus Christ shows us how serious sin is. Friends, when we're next tempted... Let's remember how serious sin is. It's no trivial thing. We mustn't just wink at it and shrug our shoulders. And yet we see to you the, the depth of the love of God. We see in this cry the love of the Father for us that he would send his one and only Son We see the love of the Son for us. Contrary to some caricatures of these events, Jesus was not some hapless third party who was in the wrong place at the wrong time and got walloped in our place. No, Jesus went to the cross willingly. He was determined to die for us. 
He even said in John chapter 10, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my accord. So we see the cry. Secondly, we see the curtain. Uh, Verse 37 says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Okay, Jesus dies, and the very first thing that happens, that the very most immediate consequence is the temple curtain is torn in two. Now, we need to just think about the geography of this. Jesus was crucified outside the city. The temple is right in the middle of the city. So what Mark is doing is he's got his camera, if you like, on the cross of Jesus. Jesus dies. Mark then has to run his camera into the middle of Jerusalem, point it at the temple curtain, then go right back to the the cross of Jesus uh, in verse 39 and show us what's happening there again. So why the switch? Why does Mark suddenly cut away from the, the cross and what's going on there for us to see a piece of furniture in the temple? And the answer is because of what that temple curtain means. Uh, That temple curtain wasn't just a, a decorative drape. That was the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. Uh, The Holy of Holies was the place where God symbolically dwelt with his people. And so the curtain was there to keep people out. It was a massive no entry sign. And it was huge, it was 60 feet tall, it was 30 feet wide, and it was as thick as your hand. Okay, this is not like your shower curtain. And that curtain was a mercy. You see, God wants to dwell with his people. But sinful people can't step into the presence of a holy God. Being a sinner in the presence of a holy God is like being a germ in the presence of Domestos. We will be consumed. We will be wiped out. And so that curtain was a mercy, keeping people out, protecting us. Um, Only one person could enter the Holy of Holies. That was the high priest and him only on the Day of Atonement. So as Tim Keller said, it's the holiest man from the holiest nation on the holiest day of the year can enter. And we're told he had to wear a a special kind of garment, the, the spiritual equivalent of a radiation suit, just to do even that. That was the way it was. That's the way it had to be. Uh, you might think of it like this. Uh, imagine you think, I would, I would like to see the Queen in Windsor Castle. Or imagine you're thinking, I'd like to go and visit the President in the White House. You can't just walk in. Okay, they are, there are layers and layers and layers of security to keep you out. If you try to get in of your own volition, you will end up on the evening news. It's just not going to happen. If our leaders who are flesh and blood like we are, if they have to be kept separate from us, 
Well, how much more our Creator, who is so unlike us, who is so righteous and pure in all He is and does. And so we can begin to see the significance of what is going on here. The moment Jesus dies, that temple curtain is torn. It's ripped asunder. Uh, We're told from top to bottom so we know where the initiative is coming from. As Jesus dies, God is making himself available. He is opening up access to himself. And again, the question is why? How? What's going on here? Um, I've got a photo that is, is framed on a, a, in a poster back home uh, where I work. And it's a picture of President John F. Kennedy. He sat at the uh, desk in the Oval Office. He's working away. There's documents around him. He's doing a Sudoku or, or something or other. And underneath his desk, on the floor, is his little boy, John John who sat on the floor under the desk with a toy. You see, there is someone who can walk into the Oval Office whenever he wants. There is someone who can bother the president in the middle of the night if he wants. And that is his child. And so as little John John looks up at this camera taking this picture, it's as if he's saying, listen, yeah, he's your president, but he's my father. And I get to hang out here. It's a wonderful picture of the access we now enjoy with our heavenly father because of Jesus' death. God has turned us from from people who are sinners in his sight to people who are sons and daughters in his sight. We now come wrapped in the garments of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10 says these words, We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh. The curtain is torn because the body of Jesus is torn. Friends, I say this to myself more than I say it to you, but it is no small thing for us to approach God. It's no small thing that we get to do that now. And yet we're so familiar with it, we're so used to the concept, we're even bored of it. And idiot that I am, I find myself thinking day after day, huh, I have to pray today. No, you fool, you get to pray today. It costs nothing less than the blood of Jesus Christ and the tearing of his body for me to be able to pray to my Heavenly Father. 
What a privilege. What a gift. And then finally, Mark shows us this confession. We've seen the immediate consequence of Jesus' death is the way to the Father is now open. And then we see the first response to that death. And it comes in verse 39. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, that confession is not news to us. Mark began his gospel, you remember, by saying, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Spoiler alert, this man is the Son of God. The Father affirmed that at Jesus' baptism. You are my beloved Son. And during the course of Mark's gospel, even the demons, even they recognized who Jesus was. But what's happening now, this is the first time a human being has recognized that Jesus is the Son of God. And it is not the kind of human being you would expect in verse 39. It's not someone who's part of the people of God already. It's not someone who's, who's clued up on all this stuff, who knows all about the Son of God language and what it means. No, it's a, it's a pagan. Not just any pagan, not some innocent nice kind of unreached pagan. It is the man who has been presiding over Jesus' death. This man who is a centurion. This man who has seen dozens, if not hundreds, of deaths in his life. This man who is familiar with seeing people die on a cross. This is a man who knew all about death and was used to it. He's not looking at Jesus and freaking out because he can't cope with the idea of someone dying. This man was there to make sure Jesus did die. But as he faces Jesus, as he sees the way in which Jesus dies, he realizes this death is different. This man is different. Maybe he'd seen the sign above Jesus' head that said, the King of the Jews. And began to think, Maybe this is how the king of the Jews demonstrates his kingship. Maybe he had in the back of his mind the fact that Caesar Augustus was called in the Roman Empire the son of God. And he's looking at Jesus and thinking, no, no, no. No, no, no. This, this is an entirely different kind of ruler. This is an entirely different kind of sovereign. This is someone who right now is showing himself to be the Son of God. Whatever it is, he sees in Jesus' death the true identity of Jesus and confesses it. At this point, this is literally... The only person who knows who Jesus is. I'm sure many of us are in situations where we feel isolated as people who confess Jesus Christ. This man was on his own. There is no death like this one. 
There is no life. This death can't transform. Okay, it is hard to imagine a less likely convert than this centurion. He was there to make sure Jesus was killed. He ends up worshipping him. So just think with me for a moment. Who is it in your life who seems so, so impossibly far from Jesus? Who is it you find yourself thinking, they will never become a Christian, not in a million years? I don't think... I was going to get this the wrong way around. I don't think they're less likely to be... There's too many negatives in that sentence for me to, to even learn how to finish it, but you know what I mean. Are they more improbable than this man? Maybe, just maybe, that person who seems so impossibly far from Jesus... Maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you're here somehow thinking, maybe someone's brought you along, maybe you've, you've come of your own volition, but you're thinking, I'm just, this is never, this, these people, I'm never going to be one of them. This is never going to be my thing. This Jesus is never going to be my Jesus. Please don't be so sure of yourself. There is no life that this death can't touch and transform. I began on Monday by saying that many of us may be here this week Recognizing that we need to meet Jesus afresh. Recognizing that our our spiritual zeal is not what it used to be. Recognizing that we need to have a fresh touch from God. Maybe you feel like you're in a rut you can't get out of. Friend, whatever it is, If you would like the confession of the centurion to be your confession, then look where the centurion is looking. Gaze at the cross of Jesus. Linger there. Look at this man and the manner in which he died. See how the one who is forsaken by God is no other than the Son of God.
hear that cry from the cross. See that curtain being torn for you. And confess with your lips, truly, this man was the Son of God. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, as we approach the cross of Jesus, we, we truly stand on holy ground. Father, we certainly stand on level ground. Whoever we are, whatever we've done, all of us come before you equally broken, convicted, humbled, undone, by what Jesus has done for us. Father, please help it to sink in that Jesus was forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. You turned his face from him so that you could turn your face to us. You cursed him so that you could bless us. You pushed him out so that you could welcome us in. Father, we thank you that we can now come before you. The way has been made open, that the curtain has been torn. We can approach you, not because of who we are, but because of the name of Jesus. And Father, help us to confess in our hearts and with our mouths Confess to our own souls. Confess to a needing world. Confess to one another. That this man is the Son of God. Father, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen.